Good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23 will be our, our main passage this morning. Um, it's hard to believe that it's been probably about 15 years since I've had the opportunity to preach here. Um, I find it personally hard to believe that I can speak of anything as though it were 15 years ago and uh, feel like it was just yesterday. Um, but the last time I was able to preach here, I was in seminary still, and I graduated in 2005, so um, it was at least 13 years ago, probably more like 14 or 15. Um, of course, I was very young when I went to seminary. Uh, I was like 12, um, so ho- hopefully you know I'm kidding about my age. Uh, most of you probably know I'm the son of Wayne and Cindy Winquist, and um, uh, the, my younger sister is Beth Schultz. I'm her favorite brother and um, her only brother. Um, most of you have seen me around here before. I've had, I've had a chance to, to be here a lot, um, a lot less so in the last year or so, because now I'm a pastor at Wildwood Church in East Moline, Illinois, um, associate pastor, and um, so getting away on weekends becomes a lot more challenging for me. So I'm, I really appreciate the opportunity. I was happy to be asked to preach because it not only means I get to be with you again, but I also get, um, uh, by de facto, get to spend some time with my family as well here in Madison. So um, it's an honor and a privilege to be here to preach God's words to you. Uh, this morning, we're going we're gonna to answer three questions about suffering. Um, and these questions are personally personal to me because I, I literally searched the scriptures for the answers to these. I read through the Bible uh, two times and, and looked for every passage that talked about suffering to, and, and, and look, looking for questions, not just these three, but these were the main three. I've seen these questions come up over and over and over again. Um, and, I, and I thought when I was done reading through the Bible, looking through these, for these passages, I thought I'd have maybe um, a couple of pages worth of notes on a, a, several passages throughout, throughout the scriptures, but what I was surprised when I, when I was done, I had over 20 pages, single space, typed, of, of passages, hundreds of passages throughout the Bible on suffering. Um, the Bible is not silent about suffering. And so, and these, these three questions are questions I've asked myself repeatedly throughout my life. These are, these are three questions that I've heard other people ask. These are questions that you hear in the news. You hear them on Facebook when, when, when things go wrong in the world. We've probably heard them with regard to Florence already, the hurricane, and people dying uh, as a result of, of the, um, the storms there. And these are three questions that were on the forefront of my mind as I was doing my study. So I'm going to give you the three questions up front um, so that you're, you're anticipating the answers as we look to God's word in Psalm 23 for them. The first question is, why would a loving God allow good people to suffer? I got, I got the slides. If you see me forgetting them. We'll go with that. But um, why would a loving God allow good people to suffer? And we personalize because we are presently going through some type of suffering. We might, we might rephrase the question or ask the same question rephrase. If, if God really loves me, why would he allow me to suffer? Uh, the second question is, where is God when I suffer? Where is God when I suffer? It's very similar to the first question. Uh, but it assumes that if suffering is happening, then God must not be present or uh, he must not exist at all. Where is God when I suffer? The third question is, what is God going to do about my suffering? 
what is God going to do about my suffering? Now, this, this question assumes a bunch of things. The, the most important of which, though, is that it assumes that if suffering is happening, that, um, that God hasn't done anything, and if God hasn't done anything about it, that he either doesn't exist um, or, um, or that he, he doesn't want to do anything about our suffering. And the, real, the reality is, that God has done something about our suffering, and we're going to see that as we work through Psalm 23 and several passages throughout the Bible. I have good news for you. These three questions, though they are at the forefront of probably all of your minds, uh, everybody has asked them. They all have answers. They do not go unanswered in the pages of Scripture. Every single one of them is resoundingly answered um, in Psalm 23 and nearly every page of the Bible. Um, so we're going to answer every single one this morning. Are you ready? Uh, our main passage is Psalm 23, so let's take a look at it. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, this, isn't, this isn't an unfamiliar psalm. Even unchurched people have probably heard this psalm before. Even if you're new to the faith, you've probably heard at least reference to this psalm at some point in, in time. It's probably the most well-known it's one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible, and um, it's probably the most well-known psalm. And so you might be wondering, you know, Matt, why did you... I mean, I was given a choice. I got to pick which psalm I wanted to do, and you're probably thinking, Matt, why would you pick a psalm that we've all heard, probably preached on a half a dozen times, a dozen times? Um, many of you probably have it memorized. My sister and I actually at, uh, at the dinner table last night... Um, we had a Spanish teacher in high school that, that, that made us memorize Psalm 23 in Spanish. And so Beth started reciting it in Spanish, and I joined right in, and our kids were looking at us like, do we know you? Um, but the, we even have it memorized in Spanish. And so it, it's a well-known psalm. Why would I preach on it? Well, um, there's an aspect of this psalm that, we don't, that, we, that often goes ignored. Uh, for example, when, when, you, when you think of, a, a, if, you're, if there's a poster that has Psalm 23 depicted on it, um, it says Psalm 23, and then there's a picture of what Psalm 23 looks like. What do you normally see in that picture? There's sheep, a shepherd, green. It's going to be mostly green, right? Green, still waters, fluffy sheep, happy sheep, uh, shepherd that looks gentle, kind, and all this stuff, you never ever see a picture of Psalm 23 with uh, the valley of the shadow of death. Brown, no life, shepherds dirty, sweaty, uh, sheep look scared, they're dirty too. Uh, you never see that. Nobody wants to hang that on their wall. Uh, that's not what we want to think about when we, we think about Psalm 23. Um, but we want to focus on the peace and the happiness in verses 1 through 3 the still waters and, 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 and the green pastures, and, and, and five through six, that is a happy part too. And we often ignore verse four. It says, even though 
I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't miss the fact that the Lord is called out as the good shepherd in verse 1. And he does not cease to be the good shepherd leading his sheep in the valley of the shadow of death in verse 4. Um, King, David was no, King David wrote this psalm. He was no stranger to adversity. He's labeled in the pages of Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And yet um, David was not unfamiliar with suffering. He endured a great deal of suffering throughout his life. And enemies were constantly attacking him. His own wife made fun of him for, for dancing and worship before the Lord publicly. Um, King Saul tried to kill him repeatedly. He tried nailing him to a wall. He tried, uh, he tried various ways to get rid of him. Um, and you would think that as God's anointed one, as his chosen king through whom um, Jesus would come to save us, that he would, this, this man, this king, David, would be exempt from suffering, and yet, and yet he was all too familiar with it. He knew the valley of the shadow of death very well. He had firsthand experience because the good shepherd led him through it repeatedly. And so why was David able to reflect positively on the fact that the good shepherd repeatedly and intentionally led him through the valley of the shadow of death? Why was he able to write this psalm with, with hope in it about green pastures and still waters? The reason is also given in verse 4, which says, for you are with me. Um, God doesn't promise that your life will be without suffering. Not once ever in Scripture does he promise that your life will be without suffering. What he promises is his presence through the suffering. Not only that, but the valley of the shadow of death isn't just happenstance. It's not an accident. It's not something that it did just happen and God allowed it to happen. Um, it, it isn't an accident or a chance when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. It is the good shepherd literally leading us through it. Um, and it, this is according to Psalm 23, in, in my opinion. Verse 3 reads, He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, I actually like, um, this is the ESV, which I believe is what you guys use. Um, and that this, this, he leads me in paths of righteousness is the normal translation. Just, I looked it up and about every major translation I could think of, and they all have the same, they all have the same thing. Um, there's one that doesn't, and it's the Net Bible, and I, I like it better. It says, he leads me down the right paths for the sake of his reputation. Now, the Hebrew word there can be translated either one, paths of righteousness or right paths. Um, the reason why I like right paths better, um, it, it can, so it can be translated either righteousness or right as incorrect. The word can be either one. And the reason why I like it better in this context is because the good shepherd doesn't always lead us down paths of righteousness. Sometimes, um, sometimes we, we end up um, on a, a path that does not look like righteousness. Um, Psalm 23 um, makes more sense with what David is trying to communicate if we read it, he leads me down the right path. Um, sometimes we're on a very dark path. Sometimes we're on a path that, that's leading to death. Sometimes we're on a very evil path. Sometimes there's, there's sin on that path. Um, not that he's leading you into sin, but all these things are the very opposite of what you think of as righteousness. No, what the good shepherd is doing is he's leading you on the right path. And the key, the key to that part is for the sake of his reputation. All right? It's for the sake of his reputation. He's leading you on the correct path for the sake of his reputation, and we'll see why. Um, we may question the sense of it in the moment, but God always leads us down the right path. No matter how dark that path might be, 
it is the right path. And he promises us his presence on that path for the sake of the reputation, even if that path is through the valley of the shadow of death. So a note of caution before we continue. Um, God does not lead you into, uh, into sin for the sake of his reputation. He does not lead us to make dumb decisions for the sake of his reputation. That's all on you. Um, um, so I don't want you leaving today thinking, you know, God led me into this temptation, so he, he must want me to partake in this sin. Um, no, what does the Bible say about that? It says that we are led into sin by what? By our own evil desires. All right, and so um, it also tells us that he does not put us into any situation that he, that he would not give us the strength to be able to endure, to stand up under it. And so, um, for example, um, I don't want you leaving here today blaming God if, say, you're in financial trouble, like you're on the brink of bankruptcy and, um, and, and wondering why God has you in the valley of a shadow of death when you chose to take out astronomical loans on your house and your car and your boat and your toys and uh, you wanted to live the happy life, the good life now, uh, but you ignored the wisdom that is in the scriptures already, that the good shepherd has already given you that says that loans are not necessarily a very good idea. There's plenty of wisdom, especially in Proverbs, about that. And so if you ignore the wisdom of the good shepherd and find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death because you sinned, because you made a mistake, because you yourself walked into the valley of the shadow of death, um, just realize that's on you. Um, I don't want you to leave here blaming God for that. Uh, so we're not focused, today's focus isn't nec- is not at all on, there's lots of suffering that happens because we do dumb things. Um, I've suffered plenty in my life for being an idiot. Um, and so that's not what we're talking about today. Today's topic is, what, what about when we are on the heels of the Good Shepherd? What is when we are trying to follow him or seeking to follow him with our whole lives, with all of our being, um, and yet we still find ourselves in the valley. We still find ourselves in a dark place. Um, what does the Bible have to say about that? Because sometimes that is exactly what's happening, even, even, um, even when we're doing what is right. Um, the question still remains, why does a loving shepherd lead us through the valley? Actually, the questions still remain. Why does a loving shepherd lead us to the valley? Where is he when we're in the valley of the shadow of death? And what is God going to do about my suffering? Uh, So in order to begin peeling back some of the layers uh, of those questions in this passage, let's turn to another passage in in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This passage will help us answer the question, why does God allow suffering? So let's start reading Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land and sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All right, so 
this story goes on to tell us that this event, this, what happened here inspired uh, Simon Peter and several of the other disciples that were there um, to follow him. Um, Jesus, Peter's response here at the end of this passage was the right one. He fell down at Jesus' feet. He was ashamed of his sin, and he feared the one that caused the miraculous catch. And so the point of the story is that the reason why it was included in the Gospels was because this story demonstrated why the disciples wanted to follow him. They understood in this moment that Jesus caused that miraculous catch, and therefore they ought to follow him, and he should be feared, and he should be followed. Um, but I want us to focus on a detail of the story that, that you might never have thought to focus on, on before. In, in verse 5, uh, Peter tells Jesus, We toiled all night and took nothing. Um, in other words, they worked, they toiled, they suffered, if you will, and they didn't catch a single fish. Um, they, they caught nothing. Now, the way they were fishing, they were fishing with nets. They were tossing nets into the water, and um, it's not very likely that they would catch nothing all night long. And that these were trained fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They knew where to fish. They knew how to fish. Um, and and tip, they might not catch very many fish some nights. But when you're fishing with nets, you usually catch a fish, something. Um, so who made it so that Peter and his fellow fishermen wouldn't catch a single fish all night long? The same person who filled their nets in the morning. All right. Why did God allow them to, to toil all night long and catch nothing? So that he could show himself powerful in God in the morning. Jesus was leading them on the right path for the sake of his reputation. There was a valley at night. There was a struggle at night. But there was green pastures and still waters in the morning. And it was for the sake of his reputation. Sometimes Jesus leads us on the right path for the sake of his reputation. It, it sure doesn't feel like the right path, but he still wants us to follow him and to trust him. And in the end, he's going to demonstrate his power and, and glorify himself even through our pain. I actually had an example of this recently in my own life. It's uh, not a, a serious story, but uh, I'll tell you a little story. This actually happened to me right after an outdoor baptism that we did at our church uh, in the Rock River. Um, and I w I'd left, Kelly was at home with the girls, and I left, and as I was leaving, I texted her and said, I'll be home at about 5.30. And, um, and so, because we had plans with some, some of the girls in the neighborhood, some of our girls' friends, I watch a movie. And so I told, and I started driving home, and there's, uh, you don't know the area probably, but in the Quad Cities, there's a couple of ways for me to go home. Um, I can either go directly east from where I was and then go directly north, and it's a very direct route, but it's on a road called John Deere Road, which is full of construction and um, lights right now. And so I hate driving that way because um, I'm impatient and really dislike waiting for anything um, <laughs> at all, but especially lights and construction. Um, and so... The other way is I can go north on I-74, actually cross over into Iowa. We live in Illinois, uh, drive over on 80, get off at the first exit in Illinois, and then backtrack along the river a little bit to our house. And so normally it's longer, but it can actually be a minute or two shorter depending on how you hit the lights. And so I chose to go that way. I usually do, even if it actually does take longer, I feel better. 
because I'm driving fast. So um, it, that's, that's the way I chose to do it. And, um, and so as I was going over the I-74 bridge, I thought to myself, you know what? I've never gone along River Drive on the Iowa side before. Um, I knew it went through. I've been on it before, but I've never actually gone all the way through. So last second, just per chance, I, I got off on it's Highway 67. I got off on Highway 67 and started driving across. And I, I was in our 99 Honda Civic at the time, which has seen better days. Uh, we've already replaced the engine in it once. Um, and so, and everything was going fine until uh, about two-thirds of the way through, the, the air conditioner all of a sudden just turned really hot. And immediately I thought to myself, oh, great, how many hundreds of dollars is it going to cost for me to have this fixed this week? And then immediately it dawned on me, you know what? Air conditioner doesn't usually go hot suddenly. Um, so I looked at the temperature gauge, and sure enough, it was redlined. So I shut the car off and, and stopped in the middle of the road. There was kind of a suicide lane there uh, at that point, and so I just stopped there and, um, and got out, opened the hood, looked, tried to see, and there was coolant all over the back of the engine, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, and I hadn't even figured out where the coolant was coming from yet, or what the source of the problem was, what, what had blown up. But... Um, a guy on an old, you know, expedition police cruiser drives past me, loops back around, turns his lights on, gets behind me, and gets, he's not a policeman, he, but he gets out of the car, doesn't look like, I immediately know he's not a policeman, but a uh, rough-looking guy, tattoos all over the place, and he explains to me that he has, uh, he's done roadside assistance before and that the police cruiser was, in fact, a police cruiser. He had just somehow managed to acquire it with still the lights and everything on it, and so I was like, great, and he's like, we need to get you off to the side of the road, and so we start pushing my car off to the side of the road so it's a little bit more safe, and, um, and, and while we're doing this, his name, the, the guy with the police cruiser, his name was Dustin, and... Um, and then while that was happening, a guy that lived right across the street from where I broke down, his name was Mark, comes running out the house across the street, and he's helping us push it across the street. And, um, and so to make, to make a long story a little less long, Dustin just so happened to have a cooling system pressure tester in his, in his truck. He said he normally didn't have it in there. He also had a, a gallon of... Uh, pre-mixed coolant in his truck that he said he normally doesn't have in there. Um, and um, Mark ran to go get some water, a radiator hose clip, and some gasket sealer. Um, the cooling press system pressure tester allowed us to diagnose where the leak was in the first place and make, it, make sure that it was, in fact, fixed in the end. Um, Mark and, and I'd called Kelly to tell her, I'm going to be a little bit late. And so she came and she brought a couple of gallons of water and went back home. Um, if you had told me before this happened that this would happen and it would go down the way that it did go down, I would have been like, you're crazy. There's no way that that could happen. Um, uh, I'd have never believed you, but I broke down and I was home by 625, which was only 55 minutes later than what I'd originally told Kelly. I didn't have to call AAA, I didn't have to bring my car in, didn't have to pay a dime. Um, and that, that would not have been a cheap repair what they did. Um, the details of the story, the way it went down, I am convinced, are too much to be a coincidence. The Good Shepherd led me down Highway 67. He caused my car to break down right where it did, 
right when it did. Had I gone either of the two original routes that I had, that I would normally always go. Um, I've lived there for over a year, and I've never gone that way. If I, if I hadn't gone that way, I'd have broke down in an entirely different location, surrounded by entirely different people. Um, oh, by the way, I have... Uh, these are the guys. Uh, Dustin's on the right there, and Mark's on the left. Um, and I gave him my card and told him to call me. I didn't have anything to pay them. But I'm like, look, if you can fix my car right where it breaks down with what you have in your car, next time my car breaks down, I'm going to call. I don't care if you're a certified mechanic. I'm going to call you. <laughs> um, so... But these, these are the guys here, and um, I was very thankful for them. I, they never called me. Um, hopefully I can find them someday. Um, but I firmly believe that God had me break down there because he wanted to show me that he cares about my every step, um, and even during the dark times. The other part of this story is that um, the week previous to that was a dark time for me. I was very discouraged and, and down, uh, and the week after was even worse. And in fact... Um, still kind of waiting for, for the, the dark times to pass in, in, in that regard. Um, but I felt very clearly, and I can remember back to the story, and, and I can remember um, that, that, that God was saying to me, I'm here, I've got you, I care, I love you, and I know, <clears throat> I know where all the green pastures are for you to lie down. Sometimes God has us go through the valleys simply because, like in Peter's story, he, of the miraculous catch, after a night of catching nothing, he wants to show you and remind you of his stellar reputation. Jesus didn't allow Peter to catch any fish at night because he wanted to prove himself, show himself, demonstrate himself, God in the morning. Why does God allow you and I to suffer? Um, why can he claim to still love us even though he leads us through the dark valley? Because in the end, he's going to show us in such a resounding way. Um, that he is God and that he can be trusted even in the storm. Speaking of storms, the second question we often ask is, where is God in the storm? Where is God when I suffer? Another story in the life of Jesus perfectly illustrates this point and answers this question. Matthew 8, chapter 23 to 37. We're not going to talk much about the, uh, the context here, but hopefully it's clear in the story itself. Uh, well, let, let's read it. It's actually 23 to 27. Um, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? So we have, we have in this story uh, where Jesus' disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. It was probably something they did on a fairly regular basis. Um, and a great storm arises. That's what the passage says. A great storm arises. Uh, this wasn't just hyperbole. The disciples weren't making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, the Bible calls it a great storm. Um, and the boat was, it says the boat was taking on water. They were it kind of sounds like the way the story is presented that outside of intervention, they were going to die. They were going to sink and they were going to die in the storm. Um, Jesus didn't notice that Jesus in this, this story didn't question 
their suffering. He didn't question the storm that surrounded them. Um, what did he question? He questioned their faith. Um, so let's ask that second question again. Where was God in the storm? Where is God in your storm? Where was God in this storm, in this boat, during that particular storm? He was in the boat. All right? He was in the boat. God doesn't promise us no storms. He promises us his presence. Um, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death on God's foreordained right paths for us, the reason Jesus questioned their faith during the storm wasn't because he thought they were Nancy boys. Uh, the reason he questioned their faith was because the one who created the storm and had the power to calm it was with them in the boat the whole time. Their fear demonstrated their lack of faith. Their fear demonstrated they didn't understand who was in the boat with them. Where is God during suffering? He's right there with you, leading you to green pastures and still waters if you're following him. In verse 6 of Psalm 23, David says that even though suffering is all around him, he expects that one day he will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. When that future expectation becomes a reality, um, we are going to understand the purpose of the valley of the shadow of death a lot more clearly than we do now while we're going through it. So we've answered the question, why does a loving God allow us to suffer so that he can, sh he can demonstrate himself God in the solution? We've answered the question, where is God when I suffer? Uh, he's right there with us just as he promised. There's still one question, though, that we haven't answered. Um, what is God going to do about our suffering? This, of course... What is God going to do about our suffering? Uh, this question, of course, assumes that God hasn't already done something about our suffering when, in fact, he has. Uh, he left his throne in heaven. He came as a baby. He lived a perfect life, um, but died a horrific death as a sacrifice for our sins. And um, in his dying breath, he says, it is finished. And he said that because sin, which ultimately is the cause of all of our suffering, um, was ultimately paid for. It, had, it no longer has any lasting power because he died and he paid for that sin. Um, he has done all that was necessary to pay for our sins, and his resurrection assures us that he has the power to, to, to raise us to life again as well, and he has power over death, and yet, and yet we still suffer. Um, we, we still hurt. We still have pains. We still have sorrows, and we still die. And so the question still remains, what is God going to do about suffering? The answer is found in Revelation. It's found in uh, Psalm 23, uh, but it's also found in Revelation 21, 1 through 6. And let's turn there to make uh, what Psalm 23 says. In Psalm 23, it says, um, it says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's see how that relates to, to Revelation 21, 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Psalm 23, 6 tells us that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And ultimately, that is the solution for suffering. God is going to make all things new. He is going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. Uh, In other words, God is literally going to eliminate the valley of the shadow of death. It's not even going to exist anymore because God's going to destroy it. And why? Because the one sitting on the throne is going to make all things new. And even more important is he will make his literal dwelling, his dwelling, he will literally live among us, with us. We will be his people in his presence forever. Just like David said in Psalm 23, well over a thousand years before Revelation was written. Even before Jesus Christ walked the earth. At the beginning of Psalm 23 in verse 2, it says that he leads us to still waters. Ever wonder what those still waters are? Revelation 21, 6 gives us the answer. It says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What are the waters, the still waters that the Good Shepherd is going to lead us to that David talks about over a thousand years before this was written? He's leading us to himself. He is the still waters. When the passage says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, he's talking about himself. Because only he is the source of eternal life. Only he is living water. Uh, There are no other waters that restore our soul other than Jesus. Um, There are no other waters that will satisfy us forever. Only Jesus satisfies us forever. There are no other waters that gives us life. Jesus is life. Uh, We can trust the solution to our suffering that the good shepherd is leading us towards. We can trust that the green pastures and the still waters um, that the good shepherd is leading us toward because he's leading us towards himself. Eternally, he's the only one that can end our suffering forever. Only being in his presence forever is the solution to all life's troubles, and we need Jesus. So once we have the answer to the three questions that, that, that we've asked, you see, um, a new question emerges. You see, the real question isn't, um, if God is loving, why does he allow me to suffer? Um, though that question is resoundingly answered repeatedly throughout the pages of Scripture, um, God allows us to suffer so that he can show us himself almighty and most powerful and most holy God before us and everyone else. But the real question also isn't, where is God during the storm? Um, and that question, might be, that question might be dealt with more than any other question in the Bible. Where is God during the storm? But that's not the real question. The question of God's presence through suffering, um, God answers that question over and over again, never once promising our life to be free from pain. He never promises that anywhere in Scripture. I looked for it. But he does promise to be with us through it all during this life. The question isn't, what is God going to do about that pain? Um, 
That is a bad question. We've already talked about that. It assumes that God hasn't done anything yet. Uh, through his own grief and suffering, he gave his own life to end our suffering. This is very clear in the Bible. There is really only one question that remains. The real question we all need to ask is, do I trust him? Do I trust him in the valley of the shadow of death as much as I trust him in green pastures and still waters? Do I trust him as much during the storm as I trust him during the calm? Do I trust him when I work my tail off and I see no results as much as I trust him when I hardly work at all and he gives me much fruit for little effort? Uh, if, you answer these questions are, are, if your answer to these questions are different on either side, yes on one side and no on the other, um, then your real issue isn't the fact that your suffering is very real. No, your suffering is real. God's not questioning your suffering. Nobody's questioning your suffering. Uh, your real problem is you don't know the good shepherd or you don't trust him or you're not following him. My hope today is that you not only know who the good shepherd is, um, but that you also trust him. I hope, you've had a, I hope you've had a shift in your perspective today. I hope that, that Psalm 23 um, reads a little bit differently today or um, that you get a little bit more out of it, something that you haven't seen before. No one likes to go through suffering, but just like David, we don't have to fear it. We know God has us on the right path for the sake of his reputation. We know he only leads us on paths that are ultimately going to glorify him in the end. We know that the valley of the shadow of death leads to green pastures and still waters, and, and we are following in step with the good shepherds of our souls. Uh, let's read Psalm 23 one more time with a new understanding of it, and let it encourage us and inspire us to trust the good shepherd no matter our circumstances. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What should our response be? If you're, in, if you're in the dark valley right now, you probably don't need to think too hard about what that valley is. No, you're there. You know what it looks like. Um, it's dark. It's scary. It's exactly what it sounds like, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, but I'd like you to spend some time thinking today and this week about the important question, do I trust him? Do I trust him? Maybe you've never made the decision to trust him at any point in your life. Um, you need to do that today. The valley of the shadow of death leads to death. Listen, the valley of the shadow of death always leads to death for those who aren't following the good shepherd. Always. And so this is a real decision that you need to confront in your own mind today. Do I trust the good shepherd? Am I following him? Because if you're not, that valley of the shadow of death is going to lead to death. It only leads to green pastures and still waters in God's presence for those who trust him and follow him. Maybe you've, maybe you've made that decision to trust him at some point in the past, but because of your own poor decisions, you have chosen on your own to walk deliberately into the valley of the shadow of death on your own. You know what? 
the good shepherd is looking for you right now, searching for you in the valley of the shadow of death. He left the 99, and he's looking for you um, to find you and bring you back to green pastures. He's ready when you are. To follow, when you're ready to follow him, he's ready to lead you to green pastures. Maybe you're in the midst of a storm right now, and you're, you're, following, the good stuff, you're following the good shepherd. You, you feel like you're right on his heels. Um, but ponder whether or not you trust him to calm the storm in his time. Do you only trust him when things are going your way, or do you trust him when he's leading you along a path through the dark valley? I pray that all of us leave here today able to answer both questions. Yes, I trust him in green pastures, and yes, I trust him in the valley of the shadow of death. I look forward to him, I look forward to him keeping his promise uh, to be with me, and even more to his promise to making all things new. Um, and make his dwelling among us. I look forward to dwelling in his house with him forever, and I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the, the wisdom and encouragement it gives us as, as we walk through this life that very often has suffering in it. Um, we just thank you that, that you are leading us to green pastures, that you are leading us to yourself to Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would trust that you are doing what is going to glorify you in the end, even, even through all of life's pain and trials. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do in the morning, even though it's dark out right now. And I pray that you would help us to trust what David said in Psalm 23, that you are with us even in the valley. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.